Good morning. Welcome to Northern Hills Bible Chapel for our family Bible hour and our time of preaching in God's Word. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, when I consider the people that are joining us by Zoom and the people that are here, I want you to know it's an encouragement to me and my family too. We don't just attend church for ourselves. We don't just attend church to see what God's going to give us. We, we attend the assembly so that we can be encouraged by viewing others worship God. And it helps us all. I'm glad that Sean had picked that last song. And as a matter of fact, everything was all ordained by God until he said to me ten minutes ago, is there a song you want us to sing before you? So that one was a setup. But I'm so glad. I Honestly, I had the song in my head, but I couldn't remember the words. Sean, what, what uh, page is that? 51? 51. 51. So let me get ready, because I wanted to look at those words for just a minute. 51 in the blue book. For me he died, for me he lives. Everlasting life and light he freely gives. Then we have the rich theology in the, verse, the four verses before that. And for me, and as I hope for most of you, Hymnology is theology. We have some great contemporary works, but we don't always grasp some of the best doctrine and theology in it. Nothing wrong with them. But I wanted to take a minute out on that because there may be someone here. You may be a believer. and You may be tired of some of the things we do. And you may be a little frustrated with some of our orders. Just remember to read the words in the hymn. Don't think it lofty and classical and not be able to connect with it. Read the words. Don't only gravitate toward the contemporary, even though there's some good contemporary songs and I'm a big fan. Gravitate towards what we do here. Even though it's done in a classical sense, there's reasons behind it. Take part into it. It was on my mind in the last year or so, after I had seen this billboard, that I had to deliver a message on maybe refuting what it it said, in science lives hope. I'm sure many of you have seen the billboard or heard the traffic and weather reports where the University of Cincinnati sponsors. Their ad is stated, and then the tagline of, in science lives hope, is given. After that, the weather and traffic reports. Does hope live in science? Can it really make that claim? This morning, I want to take a look at that claim and I want to discern whether it's true or not. I think for most of us, as we look at science in our natural world, as believers, I don't know of any believer personally that doesn't support the sciences, that's not uh, eager to talk about classical science, whether it's physics or biology, whether it's chemistry. And everything that stems out of that, engineering, medicine, as believers, we are the least threatened by sciences. I enjoy science. I use a good part of it many times in my field, not on an everyday basis, but when, but when refined work needs to be done, I have to use it. Dr. Abe, Dr. Joyce, Dr. Gagné, engineers. We use the sciences, and we're all for it. 
Christians don't have a problem with science because we realize that science is really agreement with God. It's truth and all truth is God's truth. He founded the sciences because he created the natural world. The science make the claim that it has hope, that in itself lives hope. Well, science really doesn't make any claims. That's the first thing we need to look at is science in and of itself. And before man could really go ahead and observe and perform experiments, science just, it didn't exist in the mind of man. And so really, science made no claims other than the natural laws that God gave and the way that people figured out how to interact with their world. Does science make this claim? No. Science doesn't say much of anything for itself. Humans speak for science. Is science qualified to discuss the emotional, the passionate, or belief for that matter? No, science, science really doesn't have much to say on that. It's people and motivations and agendas that try to speak for science. Let's take a look at the definition of science. And these are the definitions I remember as I grew up. And it's a definition that's been around for a long, long time. Webster's defined science as knowledge of a system or knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially obtained and tested through the scientific method. Now, that's Webster's. I like that definition. I like Oxford's better. It's one I remember closer. The intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment, i.e. the scientific method. Observation and experiment is the scientific method. And so science deals with the natural world. It, it does so through observation and experiment. And out of this, the scientific method, we're able to state what is true or false about a specific observation or experiment. Pretty simple stuff, right? Well, have you heard the old expression, it's simple but it's not easy? That applies to science. It also applies to any worthwhile endeavor. Your job, your discipline. A lot of things are simple but they're not easy. We, we can talk about them. We can get them. We can grasp them. And we have an understanding of even language. How many times do we as Americans especially eat our words? Gonna, coulda, shoulda. How many times as Americans do we go ahead and we, we have a thought and we, we put it in a euphemism and we all get it, but then somebody says, what's that mean that's outside our group? And we, well, all right, well, hold on a second. Let me, let me think about what it really means. Let me, let me try to boil it down into something that's grasped. No, the, the doing of science is not always easy. There are many failed experiments, many, many failed experiments. And many hard disciplines are required to be able to do science. You better have a good understanding of all forms of math. You better have a really good grasp on chemical engineering and physics. If you're going to be a world-renowned surgeon, and you better have a lot of disciplines at your disposal locked away. You better have all that useless information you thought you have tucked securely away so you can draw upon it. Because you'll realize it's not so useless when it's needed for science. In science, there's many things to contend with. Financial constraints and budgets. Motivations of others against our process. The natural world itself does not lend itself to, to our experiments. But the question is, 
in science, through all of that experimentation, is hope in there? According to the definition we gave, no, hope, hope is not in there. Have our lives been improved by technology and science? Absolutely. Just consider how you got here today. We've never had it so good when it comes to transportation and everything that transportation benefits. My mission was not to give too many illustrations, but to give you just a glimpse in my world how good the automotive industry is. 20 years ago, when I, when I got my, my hot rod, it was 320 horsepower, and we thought, man, that's, that's amazing. And three years later, the Mustang came out with 385, and we thought, that's the end of the world. How did we get there? That's so amazing. It is nothing today, nothing to take a four-cylinder engine and produce more horsepower and torque than that and put it in a 5,000-pound car. And what's more, it's nothing to take an engine like I have in my car from the junkyard out of a truck and produce 900 to 1,000 horsepower. It happens every day. It's so commonplace in our world today. In the medical field, when we look at doctors and we say, oh, look at their skill, look how great they are. And they would say, hey, look at the machines I get to use now. It's their skill and their mind that can perform the surgery, but there's no way their hands and their big fingers could ever do what the robotics do for them. Now, they manipulate it and they move it through, and they're looking at a screen the whole time. But yet, it's technology that's helped them do what they do. Is technology and science evil? No. Just like most other inanimate objects and other things that men use for for evil and to create chaos. Objects don't have an emotion or a will. And so I say science does not have hope living in it. I'm glad for what we have in science. I'm glad for what we have in technology. And I do realize that science has bettered our lives. We could all agree with that, at least in the areas of safety and comfort and convenience. Some people would say I'm splitting hairs and that the advancement of science is, is full of promise and hope. How, how can you not see that? University of Cincinnati is right. And it's my, my wife is an honors graduate from there. I have nothing against the University of Cincinnati. They have some of the best programs in the world. The issue is, is they're making a statement and a claim that they don't have the right to hold on to. And science does not. In science lives hope. I, I don't want to split hairs. I agree. There's, there's, there's moments where we've looked at... We've looked at things with, with Kristen, and we've seen a lot of possibility. Grateful for the expertise and the experience and the knowledge we have. Could we have handled that 100 years ago? No, we couldn't. Knowledge is exponential. In the time in which we live, the sharing of knowledge allows more knowledge to be created. We find out faster, that was a dumb idea, or we find out quicker, that's brilliant, and we need to go with that direction. Science and technology, they, they do offer some promise and the hope. They give us a hopeful sensation. We look at it and we say, man, that's a favorable prognosis. We look at it and say, oh, look at the cures we have because of science and technology. Look at surgical innovations, engineering innovations. And we could go on and on and say, wow, science has done good. But science has also done bad, mostly because of our responses to science. How we have taken the convenience and the safety and the ease and we've let it hurt us. Overall, science 
as we study the natural world and the physical, science doesn't really hurt anything. And science and technology do give people an opportunity to be hopeful. But what's the expiration date of that hope? There is an expiration date for that kind of hope. And it's death. Death is the expiration date for hope. Physical. Short-term hope. And death has came to everyone who's ever lived or ever will live. Let me say it one more time. Death has came to everyone who has ever lived or ever will live except one person. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. No, Jesus isn't his first and Christ isn't his last name. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ. And if you're not familiar, to be the Christ means you are the anointed one. And that's what Jesus was. Jesus was the Son of God, anointed by God to be the only perfect sacrifice for a fallen world. Friends, we've heard that so many times. Fallen world, Adam and Eve, Jesus Christ, my personal Savior. Sometimes it is not intimate. But I want it to be intimate today to you. The title of my message is is Hope in the Unknown God. And since I'm not as good a storyteller as my grandpa was, I can't keep you in suspense. I really don't believe that there's an unknown God. But I love Paul's tradecraft in speaking with people and how he realized that they believe in an unknown God. So I'm going to use that to go ahead and meet them where they're at. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed men once to die, but after this, the judgment. The judgment. For the believer, our judgment is based on what Christ has done. One sacrifice, perfect and complete, done and approved. And for the unbeliever, it's the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment has no recourse. Once you're there, you're there. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, there is one possibility and one end for you. And that is hell. It's not a Christless eternity. I think Christ is going to be before you in your mind and that's where the gnashing of teeth is going to come in the full regret that I should have accepted Him and I didn't accept Him. The thought of Jesus Christ will be before your mind all the time and the weeping will come and it won't be just pain. We've watered down so much hellfire. And we've watered down so much the consequence and the penalty of sin that everybody believes it's just another section of life. It's just different than this, but it's not. It's well beyond anything that we could ever imagine or think to imagine. Same as heaven. It's not just the crystal sea and it's not the pearly gates and it's not St. Peter. It's life perfection with Jesus Christ. It's an understanding that He has everything that I need and I can offer Him nothing. And as I am heaven with Him, I can live there for 10,000 years and have it feel like a day because He's there. Without Christ, we can't know ourselves. We're told that we see through a glass darkly here. But one day, face to face, we will know and be known. 
There's two options that we get in this book of truth. Truth. As Jerome alluded to today, many times it's hard to decipher truth, but when we know the one that's true, we can get a handle on what's false. And even though we may be deceived from time to time, we really know that the roadmap going to heaven, led by our Savior, is the only one that matters. There's a section in Ecclesiastes 3.11, and that's the direction I want to take the rest of this message as we get into the part of, uh, of expositing God's Word. This is just a little setup where I'm going to try to do my best to bring the parts of the Old and New Testament and, and, and consolidate them and help them work with the day and the time in which we live. Where I want God's Word to speak to your head and, and, and in, your, in your mind so you can logically think of these things we're going to talk about, but where I want the, the God of the Bible to break through to your heart and see that there's decisions I need to make. And if you're a believer, we don't get to set by passively as God's Word's opened. There's something in, that He can tell us a direction He wants us to go, conviction He may want us to have over a certain topic. And finally, I want some application out of this. I pray that God would go ahead and, and help me at least close this and shore it up so that you can leave and say, this is the application God gave me from that Scripture. Ecclesiastes 3.11 I could say He's placed eternity in the hearts of men, but I like the way the New American Standard says it. He has placed eternity in the heart. We're going to be able to make decisions and we're going to be able to know God based on the fact that He's placed eternity in our hearts. A number of years ago, in the early years of Ligonier Ministries, uh, as it desired to expand its outreach, a consultant was sent to help Ligonier develop a vision statement and a long-term strategic plan for its future growth. To better understand the mind of Dr. R.C. Sproul, who is the president and founder, the consultant asked Dr. Sproul two questions. He said, Dr. Sproul, what is the greatest need people in the world have? And without missing a step, Dr. Sproul said, the greatest need people in the world have is to know who God is. He wrote that down and he asked Dr. Sproul a second question. And he said, Dr. Sproul, what's the greatest need people in the church have? And immediately he said, the greatest need people in the church have is to know who God is. Friends, do we know who God is the way he's prescribed us to know him in his word? People in our day who desire and they hunger and they lust after knowledge. If they hungered and if we hungered after God the way we hunger after knowledge on a Google search bar, how much different would our lives be? If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 17, I'd like to start by giving you just a little background of Paul and Timothy and Silas and what's going on in their lives. This passage starts out as they're on, I believe, their second missionary journey. And, and here they find themselves in... Uh, uh, different towns on their way to in uh, stopping in Thessalonica. And, uh, and you'll, you'll see as you read this section that it was Paul's custom that if there was a synagogue there, he was going to stop. And it says he would persuade, which is to say he would preach. He would preach and he'd preach real good. 
I like when John gave us that, that little southern, southern tidbit about being saved real good. Well, Paul would do that. He would preach really, really well. And he would contend for the faith and he would plead and he would, decide, he would desire to persuade men. And they were in Thessalonica for a while, staying at a brother's house named Jason. And of course, the Jews who were focused and concerned with the law, they could not stand the fact that their power might be interrupted. They didn't like what they perceived as blasphemy, that that Paul would preach this Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected. And so they went to uh, put him on trial. And there was word of it that it was going to happen. And so Paul and Timothy and Silas were moved and and the Jews had nothing to go on. And, and of course, they always say that there is a man that's trying to put himself above Caesar. That way, the Romans will actually take take note of it. But the Romans really don't see anything. So with Jason, the place, uh, the host of, of which they stayed, they said, let's go ahead and let's just find him and let him go. But that takes Paul and Silas and Timothy to Berea. And they immediately find something different there. They find brothers and sisters who are genuinely interested in the Word of God and they want to know if everything Paul and Timothy and Silas are saying is true. Is it real? So they research uh, the Word of God. They have the prophets and they have the Pentateuch. And uh, they want to go and find out if what Paul's saying is true. Of course, the same thing happens to the persistent Thessalonian Jews. They, they come over to Berea and they want to seize Paul and Timothy and Silas, but they're able to get Paul out. And uh, he had said that he would send for Timothy and Silas in the future. And as they get him out, they get him out to Athens. And so that's the background on why Paul got to Athens. Let's take a moment to read verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Now, why Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Did you catch that? You're bringing strange things to our ears. We want to know what these things mean. And then I love the fact that the Holy Spirit chose to put this verse in here. Verse 21, For all of the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. I am, I am interested and intrigued by that verse that the, the Athenians and the foreigners were there spending their time in nothing else but to tell or to learn of something new. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge's sake. And friends, I wonder, as Paul has, is getting ready to tell, that, tell them that he perceives they are religious, and he sees the idols that are present, and he looks at every way in which they're trying to learn and to know in different cultures and foreigners and travelers. I wonder today, 
and I don't think it's too far of a stretch, and I don't think it's too hard to wonder, is science the same thing for us today? So many people would prefer and want to be on the right side of science. And many in science and scientific debates use it as a cudgel to go ahead and dismantle religion. They hate the God that did it. They loathe the fact that we just can't grasp a natural concept. They, they praise the creation and worship the creation, but not the Creator. And so these guys are here and they are... They're just interested in knowledge. They love the pursuit of it. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all of the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your poets have said as well, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are his, the offspring of God, we ought not to think that his divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by the art of man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day of judgment in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, Christ Jesus He has given assurance to all of this by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them was Dionysus the Oropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And isn't that the case of the world? Nothing's new under the sun. When we preach the Word of God, some scoff, some stroke their chin, and others believe and are changed. I want to go ahead and as as we've had a chance to read through that, I hope that was a blessing to you to read and to hear uh, and follow along with that section of Scripture. The first thing I want to want to take out is is when Paul got to the city, he was his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that it was given over to idols. And I don't think it was provoked, in this case, to, to anger. We've seen Paul angry before. But I think it was provoked to compassion of just how, how lost these people were and how they had no direction at all. And I believe Paul was full of compassion because it says in the next verse, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. And to reason is to is to extract out, ask questions, talk, discuss, try to bring out 
their side of the story and then insert truth in a conversation. Paul reasoned with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. And let's not forget, Paul was also disciplined and bold because he did it every day in the marketplace with those who were there as well. It eventually got the attention of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. And they were really interested to see what he said. They were curious because they had preached a God that, that, that actually died for mankind. And he preached something new to, new to him that, new to them that, that they had not heard before. It was that he, he rose again. He rose again. You know, that was the never, that was never the case with, with the Roman and the Greek gods. They were distant. They were eternal, but they would have never sacrificed themselves for mankind. They never had a desire for mankind other than maybe human type desires. You always look at other gods and other religions and you can always see the human element in it. And that's what I trust about the Word of God is it's not the way I would have written it. It's transcendent. It's true. It's inerrant. It does not contradict. We can stand firm in the fact that what we have before us is absolute truth from an absolute God who revealed Himself to us. I, I have to take a, a proud Papa moment because I brought up the concept of the Roman and the Greek gods. And, and I just want to say I'm proud of my middle son, Jonah, as he had had kind of a tough year with a certain teacher, but how he responded really touched my heart. One of the last days of instruction, the teacher was probably offering an elective, and it was elective on Roman and Greek gods and various ones. Now, keep in mind he's in third grade. I don't remember about learning learning about Zeus or Athena or Venus or, or Mars or Jupiter or any of those in third grade. But as she went through and they watched a film or researched or read, I, I don't know, at the end of it all, or maybe when he was with the teacher, he said, are we going to learn about the real God? She said, the real God? What, what do you mean? About Jesus? Oh, we can't. What school do you know of? What school do you know of that teaches about that? And his response was, Christian schools, and those kids are pretty smart. The teacher and him really didn't get along too well, and I wouldn't say that it was all her fault. She did some things that I don't think would be advisable. But after the kind of year he had, and making bold statements like that from time to time, he and his mother went out to get a gift for the teacher. And what did he choose? He, choosed a, he chose a very nice bound New American Standard Bible and the new edition of Lee Strobel's Case for a Creator. And he gave it to her. Why do I bring that up? Sure, I'm proud of my son. But for somebody to know about Jesus Christ, it doesn't happen through osmosis. There's none that seek after God. No, not one. And let's not forget that we love Him because He loved us first. I do like the statement in the section that we'll read in a little bit about God has made Himself plain so that we might grope after Him. 
that goes back to what I really want to focus on at this section is that God's placed eternity in the heart. So many are concerned about the 1040 window and Christ won't return until this is done and that's done and they have no say in it. None. Every heart must be reached and everybody must know the Gospel. Well, they know the Gospel and the Gospel's present in their heart because God's placed eternity in their heart. God has desired that we live with Him in the infinite forever. Now we read that, that He's placed eternity in the heart. Everything God does from beginning to end, we don't know. I can't understand and I cannot decode everything from beginning of time to end of time. But where we are in the middle, I know God's placed people and eternity is in their heart. And what does it mean for eternity to be in their heart? It means they know there's a void, there's something missing. I can't put my hand on it. But my career just doesn't fulfill. I can't put my, my finger on it, but I've done everything I can and I still feel lacking. I feel empty. I'm the best doctor. I'm the best engineer. I'm the best produce worker. I'm the best everything. I've desired so much knowledge. I wanted to know everything about what I do. And I'm empty. And you know, God's, God allows believers to be a little bit empty too. In my world, it was different clubs or something you would join or even something online. And I wanted to know everything about what I do. Some of it was over my head. Some of it I, I pursued and pursued the knowledge of what I wanted to know and I did learn it. And I became better and better. And then I would observe the unbelievers in that group taking everything so seriously. And I would always laugh. God would always say, yeah, but it's not forever. God has given us eternity so that it's a constant reminder to us. No matter how hardened the man, no matter how young the child, there is not an individual who is complete without him. As they took Paul to the Areopagus, they wanted to know what doctrine he was speaking. He made it pretty plain. He was bold in the square. He was, he, he, he was bold wherever he was. He had truth. He had seen it firsthand for himself that his life was changed from Saul to Paul. Who knows what Paul said in these messages? We don't have a, a timeline here. We see that he preached Christ crucified and resurrected, but did he tell them their story? Was he bold enough to say, hey, now that we understand who the unknown God is and that there's only one true God, God hates idols! And we look back in Exodus 20, and God said, don't have any other God before me. Don't make an image of any other gods or idols because guess what? They're dumb. And I don't mean that to try to put other gods down. They really are dumb. They can't speak. They can't feel. They can't hear your cries. They don't have anything to offer. And at the end of the day, you know you're lying to yourself. You know it's not true. You made that idol. And you may have made it from gold or silver and it's going to look beautiful, but it's not real. It's not true. God is serious about idols, so much so that He says, don't even make an idol after Me. Don't put any graven image of what you think I am or what you think I might be because it skews everything and you end up with Genesis 6 all over again. They had made idols to themselves. They were unequally yoked. 
They pursued every desire of the flesh. And though my Holy Spirit was active and I gave him the righteous one and Noah and his family, they perished. So men of Athens, Jewish people and believers today, choose whom you will serve. Know who it is that is your God. Understand the propensities for idols in our own lives as believers so that we can be effective with an unbelieving world who vaults at least at a minimum science up as its idol. There is no hope in science. There's no hope for eternal life in science. Paul has marched forward boldly. And I think after he's discussed with them the seriousness of idols and maybe his own story about the scales falling off and how he went from Saul to Paul, that he persuaded some people. But we can clearly see at the end of the chapter, after all of the information about God he's given, that he didn't persuade them all. And if you would indulge me just a little bit to use my sanctified imagination, I'm going to take what I see in our life today, especially as I get older. And I'm going to try to marry it up to here. I think I'm right. I hope I'm right. Regardless, I don't think it it skews the text and what we should learn from it. But we have many people today, just like then, that, that they hear the Word of God and it makes sense and it may impact their life and it may touch them in a little way. But they, they just love the world too much. They love the system that they're in. And they can't see the need for a Savior because everything's okay. And that might happen more in youth as they go on. But then there comes those times in life, whether it's through career or family or, 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 or uh, vocation or whatever they have, that they start to feel that, that emptiness, that itch that cannot be scratched, that, that void in their life where, where, where they see that there is something missing. And that's the eternity God's placed in their heart. That's the, the absence of Him. And out of those years, they might come to know Jesus Christ. But if they don't, they keep going on and they keep going on. And something oddly magical happens in your 40s. Where you start to, to say, maybe this is the way life is supposed to be. And we, we make excuses and we, we rationalize. And we say, things aren't so bad. And, and yeah, I've got a family and I'm not 100% fulfilled in everything. or My career just isn't doing it for me. But we, but we quench the Holy Spirit's prodding in our life. And we continue to put water on it and water it. And eventually that fire goes out and we set in. And we say, I guess this is the way it's supposed to be. Overall, I'm happy. House will be paid for in a little, little while. And maybe we'll get a boat. And things start to try to replace that empty, lonely, nagging void. And I think after all Paul's message and exhortation, I think that's what we happen when we say those scoffed. Some scoffed. I think those are the older guys in this temple. And if you, want the, if you want my humble opinion, I think this temple had a lot of attrition because I think a lot of people went there 
over and over and over. And they, they kept getting knowledge and they kept getting their ego stroked. And eventually they got to the point where they thought, I'm still empty when I get home and it's just me eating dinner by myself. And I, I, I was in an echo chamber this whole day and nothing really got accomplished and I'm, I'm lonely. And I think the attrition rate of some of the younger ones was, was pretty high. But here we have the guys who scoffed. I may not be right, but I think it might have been some of the older guys who finally just settled in. And they said, eh, we're the standard bearers here. We're the people everybody see. We're going to keep people coming back to our club. And they just settled in. And it was easy for them to scoff because they'd believe nothing. Just tell me knowledge. Keep the drift coming over and over so I don't have to think about life and I don't have to think about things that matter. Then you had those that stroked their chin and they looked and they said, we will hear more on this matter. Those guys make me laugh the most because right after that it says Paul departed from them and then immediately in the next chapter it says, and after these things Paul departed. When did they have a chance to hear again? And so that was their stall tactic. I'm okay. Let me, let me just observe. Let me, let me look uh, professional and observe what you've told me, Paul. And let it really come to no effect. And someday I'll be like these guys who scoff. Don't be a scoffer. And if you're at that point, you'll never, never fulfill anything that your heart desires. That void, that eternity in your heart will never be filled until Christ fills it. Never. I can say these things on confidence to any unbeliever present here today because as a believer, my heart is not filled when I try to fill it with anything but Christ. And He already lives in here. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. He's filled that void. But many times I try to go ahead and add to it what I think is good. You know, I want to... I want to pause just a minute on that that last part of the verse where it says, however, some men joined. It's almost like every other section of Scripture that we look at when we have all the evil of mankind and the chaos but God. And God is faithful at this point that He's he's sent His Word out there and He's going to call. He's going to call some. And then they're going to have an impact on another some. And those will have an impact on another sum. God has been faithful through the millennia. From that point to this point. From then till now, He's been faithful. Because you've received the Word with all joy and gladness. And I look at most of you, knowing your example, knowing the fruit of your life, I know that most are believers. But I'm not so... Naive to believe that we don't have people who have been churchgoers for 50 years that aren't believers. And I'm not so naive to believe that God doesn't place at the right time in the right place people who have said no to Him over and over and over. And they're getting older and older and it's easier and easier to say, I'm going to sit in here. I'm fine. I'm fine. I can add something to this in my life. The truth is, We can't because we didn't design ourselves. We did not create ourselves. And we we can't say, well, I'll fill something with what I perceive I need because we don't possess it. One of my favorite passages of Scripture 
is verse 27 and 28. That they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope in him, grope for him and find him. And then it's so, so as matter of factly stated by Paul, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. In him we live and move and have our being. Brothers and sisters, anyone listening, we can't know ourselves apart from God. We cannot know truth apart from God. We have people in science proud to call themselves metaphysicists. Metaphysicists. Is Romans one right or is Romans one right that they follow after their vain imaginations? They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship the created rather than the creator. Metaphysics is, is not 100% real physics. It's physics with a lot of imagination behind it. And they don't realize in the simplest of ways that we're responsible to omniscient, omnipresent, immutable God. In the simplest of ways that we breathe, that we wake up from the night of sleep. We live and we move because of Him, because of His goodness. Know this Savior. Know this God. And know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we sit here today, be like Paul. Take an adventure. Share your faith. Like everything we start at, it might be ugly at first. But Paul didn't beat him over the head initially. He just reasoned with him. Let's talk. Let's share. Tell me what you think. Let me tell you what I think. Not everybody gets saved on the first pass. Not everybody gets saved. I hope it's clear that we today from reading of this wonderful passage, and I know others have done it much better than me, but I hope it's clear to, by reading this passage today that, that God is all-sufficient within Himself and for us. Paul knew that personally. He knew that intimately, and that's why he had a desire to reach other people, Jews and Greeks alike. Ask for that desire. Let us rekindle that, that time in American history when we had a passion to get God's Word out. You know, America's not going by the wayside because of science. It's going by the wayside because of us, because of the church. Jesus had said, if the salt loses its saltiness, then, then what of effect is it? If it turns into a weak, watered-down brine, how does it help anything? It doesn't cure conditions. It doesn't, it doesn't remove infections. It doesn't take care of problems. And Christ likens us to, as believers as the salt. And if we don't have any saltiness left, then we're useless. The tide is not stemmed in America. 
But God's bigger than politics and God's bigger than problems. But for us to say that confidently, we need to believe what God is saying and doing and He's wanting us to make an impact right where we are. I hope that you will listen to the Lord through this and realize that we have the opportunity and the commission to do what Paul did. And I would pray that as we desire to be complete believers, we would be complete believers by ministering and offering His Word to a dying world. It's a simple message. Paul got through it pretty quick here. At least, at least as it's written down in Scripture. We don't have to be elaborate. We don't have to say amazing things. We just have to say the basics. Whether we feel silly about saying Jesus Christ in public, my personal Savior, or not, it's Him that if He is lifted up, will draw all men unto Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that You've assembled us, Lord, that You give us the encouragement of other believers so we know, Lord, that we're not alone, that we're that we that we're not losing our mind, that trusting in you, Lord, it's it's something that you've called many to. Father, you've been so good to us. Lord, personally, Lord, in our personal sanctification and our in, in the love you express for those who are sick and, and Lord, those that are hurting, you give hope. You give hope for the the life that's to come, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we read these sections of Scripture and as we look at Paul's life and as, as we look at uh, our world, that, that Father, we, we have compassion for it and that we're ready and willing to reason and declare the faith to, to an unbelieving world. I pray, as, I pray as Christians, Lord, that we would be sensitive to, Lord, to issue things and idols in our own life, Lord, things that we, that we build up, that, that we give place higher place than you in our life. Lord, I pray that we would be that we would be humbled and, and, and tendered, Father, by the ministry of your Spirit, and Lord, that we would we would really, Father, just let that void in our lives, Lord, be be completely filled by your Holy Spirit. For the unbeliever who's never experienced you, Lord, that void will not go away until your until your Holy Spirit's present. Lord, I pray if there's an unbelieving individual here that they would accept you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, Amen.